independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. You're listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. I'm so excited to continue the show with you as we reawaken with the spring season here with episode 301 and beyond. If you're new here, and especially if you're newer in your sustainability journey, I really recommend starting from some of our earlier content because oftentimes in later episodes, we pick up on and dive deeper into things that we initially learned in earlier ones. And if you want my guidance in getting started, you can sign up to our Embark newsletter to get our most popular episodes across a wide range of topics recommended to you. And you can find that at greendreamer.com slash Embark. Green Dreamer is a mostly listener-supported show, and remaining an independent platform is critical for us. It is what allows us to take on a multidisciplinary lens in understanding sustainability with both depth and breadth, and it's also what allows us to cover a lot of alternative topics that are often sidelined by mainstream media. So if you value our work, please come uh, join us on Patreon to help us reach our goal starting at just $2 at patreon.com slash green dreamer we are starting to transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible and we're also starting to share video highlights on youtube as well in video format and all of this takes a lot more work and time and labor so just we really appreciate all of our past and current patrons and you as well for however and whatever you are able to contribute to support us thank you so much And I mean, this is most obvious in the case of Disney's Animal Kingdom, which is the selling of a particular experience with nature, but also was evident in other places too. You know, Yellowstone functioned on on commerce as well in this particular consumption of nature. So I was I was considering and interested in the way in which that framing of nature sort of closed down other possibilities for for relationships. Today, we welcome Dr. Stephanie Rutherford on the podcast. She's an associate professor in the Trent University School of the Environment, and her work is interdisciplinary, focusing on the intersections among the environmental humanities, animal studies, and environmental politics. She's the author or co-editor of three books that consider these themes, with a new book forthcoming on wolves, settler colonialism, and biopolitics in Canada. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie. I'm honored to have you. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I would love it if you could start us off by sharing a bit about your background and how you came to focus on the intersections of environmental humanities, animal studies, and environmental politics. Yeah, for sure. It was a bit of a circuitous journey in the sense that I never really considered myself an environmentalist. And in fact, I was a little bit suspicious of environmentalism to some degree, 
but I was always curious about questions of power. That's kind of where, where I came to the environmental humanities and then later animal studies. And so I was this really reluctant environmentalist, even as I, I enrolled in a PhD in environmental studies, I was still this reluctant environmentalist because I thought at the time that environmentalism was all about the sort of veneration of wilderness. And I had grown up in Toronto, in Canada, in a community that was, I guess it would be defined now as an environmental justice community in what was, it's called Scarborough. And we didn't have any of the majestic wilderness that seemed like that's what environmentalists wanted to save. And so my questions were always more about poverty, racialization, and the relationship to poverty and questions of power. But then I enrolled in this this PhD program and met really, really great and smart people and began to realize that environmental questions were much broader than the way that I was thinking about them and began to tie together my interest in in questions of power with how we talk about the environment and the the sort of stories that we tell and who that includes and, and who that excludes. So that's how I came to sort of where I am today. In your book, Governing the Wild, you highlight four emblematic American scenes that shape people's perceptions of nature, including the Hall of Biodiversity at Mm -hmm. the American Museum of Natural History in New York, Disney's Animal Kingdom theme park in Orlando, an eco-tour of Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks, and the film An Inconvenient Truth. And even though they all seem quite different, you look at how they've, they're all manifestations of what's called green governmentality. So can you first unpack what this means for our listener and why it was important for you to understand these sites through this lens? Yeah, for sure. So it was the same question about power, right? And I was convinced that there was a kind of storytelling that was happening in in these sites of national nature almost, right? Like these kind of famous places where we go to visit or consume specific ideas around nature. And so what I wanted to do, and this is what I talked about in terms of green governmentality, but I think a different way of saying that is what's the story that gets told in this place? And how does that open up the possibilities for some understandings of our relationship to nature while foreclosing other understandings of our relationship to nature. So you brought up national parks and, and of course, national parks are this like storied place, right? All of them are storied in, in terms of the relationship between nature and nation and how we think about this idea of, of wilderness, right? And of course, Bill Cronin has famously deconstructed, as have many others now, deconstructed this idea with his now famous essay, The Trouble with Wilderness. But, and so I was curious about how the story of nature was told in these, as you say, really seemingly disparate places, right? Like they don't seem to have that much connection to each other. And what I came up with was the way they told the story of nature was often as separate from, from people and strangely commodified, right? And I mean, this was most obvious in the case of Disney's Animal Kingdom, which is the selling of a particular experience with nature, but also was evident in other places too. You know, Yellowstone functioned on on commerce as well in this particular consumption of nature. So I was I was considering and interested in the way in which that framing of nature sort of closed down other possibilities for for relationships 
that might be more generative, more about healing our relationship to the natural world, more about thinking in terms of kinship rather than separation. So yeah, that's that's kind of the, the shorthand, the quick and dirty for that book, which was my dissertation, and it feels a really long time ago now. I mean, you mentioned this idea of commodification. That nature has been commodified is nothing new, although I think a lot of people see that mostly through the lens of, you know, the consumption of products that are bought and sold. But in terms of looking at the commodification of nature experiences, since they are reduced to an expenditure, what does this reveal about how people of different genders, race and ethnicity and class have been able to engage with nature in these very particular ways? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. I mean, I think that there is always the possibility and the practice that people experience nature differently than than the script intends, right? Like there's always an opportunity to subvert and resist the dominant framing of nature in any of these places, right? There is that opportunity to resist as much, you know, humans resist many, many things. And there's always different ways of, of coming to know and understand our relationship with the natural world. But so what I was curious about was this dominant framing, right? Like, so what does it mean to go and to go on this eco tour in Yellowstone National Park? Who attends? Who is it framed around? And and whose interests does it put forward? And it did seem to me that it was certainly a, a racialized and classed experience of the wild. As you mentioned at the beginning, it kind of followed this trajectory of a sort of white environmentalism, where caring for nature becomes a thing of expenditure of cash, or also a place that you visit, but it's not actually the place where you live, right? And that's the kind of commodification of the experience that I think is is a bit of a problem if we want to actually build a genuine relationship with nature, right? Like we exist now in this moment that some people have called the Anthropocene, right, the age of man. And there's lots of debate about whether that's the best way to to think about our environmental crisis. But I think that there is something that says we have fundamentally altered the the biogeochemical processes of the earth. And that's a flawed relationship. That's a bad story that we're telling, right? The way in which we have encountered nature, some of us, not all of us, hasn't been about flourishing. It's been about diminishment. And so if we're going to tell a different story, I think maybe we need to ask different people how they encounter nature and sort of move away from these more dominant framings of what of what nature looks like and what its care looks like and, and all of those sorts of things. And when thinking about the iconic sites you looked at, what stands out to me is how they each play with temporality and distort our perceptions of time and therefore reality. So, for example, you say in Yellowstone and Grand Teton, it can appear as if nature has already been saved. Visitors can pretend that the clock has been turned back, that nature exists here as it did before westward expansion. Due to the efforts of national park staff combined with the foresight of those who crafted the park ideal, visitors can leave their urban homes and encounter an quote-unquote authentic and pristine nature. 
The management of the lives of these animals, from reintroductions to tracking, has made it so that they can thrive in this small yet breathtaking parcel of the United States, leaving much of the rest wide open to business as usual. It is in this oasis, this recreated Eden, that the wholesale slaughter of bison, wolves, and bears that made the nation can be forgotten. End quote. I wonder if you could speak more to how these very curated experiences, even national parks that may appear as if they they've been left untouched, how these places play with ideas of permanence and impermanence and past, present and future, which then distort our perceptions of reality. I do think that there is that the ways in which the environment is presented in the places that I looked at in this book. And particularly, I would say, less so the American Museum of Natural History, History, but certainly in Yellowstone and in Disney's Animal Kingdom, there was a bit of like this incarceration of nature as of the past, right? In this, as you suggest, this kind of distorted temporality, right? So if, if nature is separate from culture and is, a, is of the past, then the things that we do outside of these sites of nature are are of the future. There is a futurity to it, right? And so it can authorize and enable all kinds of ways of relating to the environment that are quite destructive. But as long as we we maintain these sites of protected nature, then it's it's fine, right? It almost lets us off the hook for everything else. I mean, this was, and this is not my original articulation. This is what Bill Cronin talked about when he talked about the trouble with wilderness is like, you know, the trouble with wilderness is it lets us off the hook for the places that we actually live. And I think that's the, the playing with temporality that you suggest does precisely the same thing, right? It means that as we live into the present and as we look to the future, that those futurities don't have to pay attention to the to our entanglement and enmeshment with the natural world and all of its critters, right? Because that's incarcerated in a in a pastime in a small place in you know part of Northwest uh, in the Northwest United States. Bring your fire. There's a particular quote that really stuck with me from the book when you described mm -hmm. how the Bengal tiger displayed in the museum essentially sacrificed their life to live forever in the curated setting. Mm -hmm. And also with national parks as well, a lot of people get this idea that this is what quote unquote pristine, untouched nature looks like absent of human involvement. But the managers and decision makers had specific ideas in mind in terms of what they want the visitors to get out of their visits and what they want people to experience of the park. So that while it is living and breathing, it's also at the same time 
kind of frozen in time because it's actively being managed so that it can be presented to the public in very particular ways, if this makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that lots of us visit parks, for instance, and imagine, you know, that we are visiting kind of primeval nature, right? But there's a lot of effort, for instance, in national parks or, or provincial parks here too, that goes into making it seem that way. And as you say, there is there is a particular narrative which is being told. And sometimes I think, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but we should be aware that there's a narrative, right? That this is not just this unmediated encounter with wild nature. This is a particular kind of ex- experience which is curated in a specific sort of way that, that we're supposed to, you know, there's like a pedagogical intent. We're supposed to learn the right thing. And I think it's often interesting when people learn the wrong thing, like when they, they take away from that experience something which is quite different than the than the managers who, who constructed it intended. And there's always sort of slippage, right, in these in these narratives. So they're not forever and they're kind of iterative in the way that they need to be re-upped almost like all the time. But they are. They exist as narratives and we should we should understand them in that way. And to that point, I feel that oftentimes we consume narratives and experiences without taking time to peel back the curtains to look at the powers shaping and curating those stories and settings. So, for example, you say, I suggest that much more goes on at these sites than the mere experience of a pre-existing nature. Rather, these sites create nature in particular ways, but simultaneously erase the fact of its cultural production. And I would argue that the result of these kinds of tales is that other ways of of encountering nature are rendered unthinkable, other stories unsayable, end quote. What should we keep in mind in regards to how power works to define nature for us, as well as the solutions to our ecological crises that now receive the greatest publicity and attention? There is a kind of framing of nature, particularly in Western thought, and it, it suffuses philosophy and ways of sort of articulating our relationship to nature, that people are both unique and superior because of our capacity to reason and our ability to use language and all of this sorts of things. And it's framed around this idea of a nature-culture divide. But that's always been a fiction, right? Like this this kind of human exceptionalism that we, some of us embrace, often in Western culture, has ignored the fact that nature has always been lively and full of agency, and we are always enmeshed with that agency. And so I think one way of moving beyond potentially the environmental crisis that we face, and, you know, these are existential threats, right? Like, we need to be serious about the environmental problems that that we face because they are multiple and they're intersecting and they are cascading. And as a person who, who is concerned about, for instance, the biodiversity crisis, I can't just be concerned about animals. I also have to think about climate change because those two things are knit together tightly, right? But I also think that until folks are willing to have a real conversation about the ways in which, for instance, the Anthropocene, Anthropocene sort of broadly as this shorthand for for environmental crisis, is tied to colonialism, is tied to white supremacy, is tied to kind of articulations of capitalism, along with things like speciesism then I don't know that we're going to be able to solve this, 
right? Like I think that my my answer is that we have to think, and this is following lots of Indigenous scholars, for instance, and activists who who say to have said and said these things first, that we need to think about these these issues in concert with one another, right? That particular ways of understanding uh, the relationship to the natural world, for instance, come out of settler colonialism and particular ideas of private property. And until we start to understand that and, and take apart those connections, I don't know how much further we're going to get, right? It's a joint project all the way down. So, yeah, a lot of our solutions right now still operate inside of the same frameworks and mm-hmm. don't go deep enough to address the extractive system and world itself that led us to where we are. And a lot of these curated nature experiences that still center on the commodification of nature, like you mentioned earlier, they're disproportionately consumed by people with greater economic privilege and power to influence our society's direction. So I wonder Mm. if you can speak more to power in this sense, in that the people with the most power to shape our society and decisions and future are the same people who disproportionately understand nature or have come to understand nature through the lenses of such curated and commodified experiences Mm. that may perpetuate the story of separation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a a great question. You know, the, the way in which we have articulated the solution to environmental problems often looks like, well, it would be good to buy a Tesla, for instance. And sure, it would be good to buy a Tesla, right? If you are going to continue to drive, for instance, but you might want to have a deeper conversation about your relationship with automobiles. And so there is the kind of easier way of answering the environmental question. And then the, the sort of tougher one, right? That actually does pay attention to the fact that wealth seeks to reproduce itself. And one of the ways in which I think capitalism has been particularly effective is in seeking to to sort of colonize and subvert resistance to it. So, you know, environmentalism, for instance, can have a very radical edge to it, a very sort of anti-capitalist edge to it, or in the ways in which it's been kind of taken up, it can be about buying environmentally friendly products, right? And and this is not me saying that we shouldn't buy environmentally friendly products. I certainly think that we should do, or we should do those things. But that doesn't get, as you say, to the deeper question. It doesn't get to the question of how inequality, economic inequality can produce environmental harm. It doesn't get to the question of, of how um, racialized people and poor people are more likely to experience environmental harm. Those things are tied to capitalism too, right? And so if the answer becomes, we should just buy better things rather than we should deal with the fact that the whole structure is set up so that extraction, either through green products or some other kind of product is the answer, then we're kind of in trouble, right? We might just be shuffling uh, deck chairs on the Titanic, right? We're maybe by ourselves a bit of time, but but I don't think that's going to be the thing that helps us live better in the world. So right now we have a top-down approach to storytelling, as in the narratives and experiences that have the most influence over public perception are mostly shaped by power. So how do you think our relationship with Earth would change if our ways of knowing the world were shaped mostly in decentralized ways and coming from people closest to the land and people most Mm -hmm. marginalized by our dominant culture? And specifically, what sorts of narratives and solutions to our ecological crises 
have been rendered unthinkable that we might come to know through alternative ways of learning? My own learning and my own unlearning, I guess, I have been so lucky in my life to have learned from Indigenous folks who have taught me about different ways of relating to the natural world. And a lot of this is around kinship. So my, my present work is on wolves in Canada. And so I've just finished this book on the history of wolves in Canada. And the book sort of charts the ways in which settler relationships with wolves have often been violent, certainly, if we look at the bounty or if we look at efforts at predator control. But even in this kind of narrative of loving the wolf, right, as this last wilderness ambassador, there is not an attempt to actually know the wolf on its own terms as a creature that has specific aims and agency in the world. And so there's still a separation. There's a, there's a reinforcement of a kind of separation. And what I have learned from Indigenous colleagues and friends is a different way of relating to the creatures of this earth, which focuses on kinship, right? Which emphasizes that we haven't just suddenly been tied up together with animals. It's always been this case. And acknowledging that and, and acting in ways that emphasize kinship with the rest of, of creation, whether that's, you know, plants or animals or microbes or the soil, is, I think, a, a different way of relating. But it's one that we need Indigenous people to lead, right? That's, it's not a story I can tell. We need Indigenous folks and, and people like me, though, need to, to amplify and raise up the voices of Indigenous people who are telling us that this is this is the way forward, right? So, so that's been my greatest lesson is sometimes people who look like me need to just be quiet and stop talking so much and, and stop taking up so much airtime and instead allow other voices to, to come to the fore because I think the answers are there. It's about acting in solidarity and, and not wanting to lead all the time. Mm. And to expand upon this, right now, research funding disproportionately goes into quote-unquote solutions that are the most scalable and even patentable with potential returns on investment. Mm -hmm. And so things like patented lab-grown meats or carbon capture technologies or quote-unquote clean energy, they're the things that disproportionately get more publicity and hype across the media landscape. And then what happens is that decentralized, place-based, solutions that often can't even be extracted from get sidelined. So just as an example, we know that indigenous peoples make up about 6% of our global population, but steward 80% of biodiversity. Mm -hmm. And that to me says everything in regards to how how we address climate change and the sixth mass extinction. And whenever I bring this up to people in the impact investment space, they'll say that, yes, we fully support, you know, community-driven approaches, and we should learn from indigenous knowledge to inform the solutions that we innovate and then implement. But a lot of that is still sort of extractive because it's about taking and capitalizing off of indigenous knowledge rather than recognizing the need for deeper perspective and relational shifts. And that if we're talking about healing degraded lands and marginalized communities, sometimes it has to be about purely giving back Mm -hmm. and restoring rather than seeing these things as investment opportunities to take and extract even more from. 
I think it's, it's, I, you're absolutely right. And I think that, for instance, academia has been particularly problematic in this regard. And Eve Tuck talks about this sort of extractive, the, the ways in which academia ha- extractively takes Indigenous knowledge and tries to fit it in to a framework and then, and then uses it for, for their own gain, right? And you're pointing to this, you know, this clean meat is another, I think, example of, of the ways in which resistance is kind of commodified and, and sold back to us in ways that are about enriching some people, but as you say, not doing anything to help or to, to pay attention to the knowledge and wisdom of the land that's already there. And we just need to support Indigenous place-based practice. So I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. And to pivot to your more recent focus on wolves, you mm-hmm. wrote an article about the counterintuitive position of the wolf as a central icon for a few different North American white nationalist groups. Yeah. And these groups' identification with wolves is counterintuitive because historically wolves were a feared and hated species, often associated with indigenous peoples. And both groups were the subjects of you know, numerous extermination efforts. So it's an interesting contradiction. And I'd be curious to hear you unpack your research on this more and what you learned in regards to why and how the narratives around wolves have shifted in the recent years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was a strange discovery for me, right? Because I was at the time in the middle of writing my book and, and was kind of mired in the the archives, the archive, these archival sources, which were charting white settlers' relationship with wolves, and they were only ever violent, and they were often like egregiously violent. Like you know, the ways in which settlers were killing wolves was was often overkill. Like there seemed to be some sort of like the hatred was so deep, right? And so I'm doing, you know, I'm doing this work, and I'm in the archives and whatever, and I'm writing this stuff up, and then I start to sort of in the back of my my mind or sort of through through media tendrils or whatever, start to find out that there's a whole range of white nationalist groups, though they don't define themselves in that way. They sort of, this broad kind of alt-right idea, are using the wolf as this sort of symbol, right? And so I was confused about what was happening. But when I did a little bit more research, it seemed like a lot of this is related to a kind of attachment to Norse mythology, and and Odin and all of these sorts of and Fenrir the wolf, but there was this kind of storying of the wolf as aggressive, a warrior, you know, able to to sort of be macho and like an alpha male, right? Like that was the sort of ways in which the wolf was being deployed as a symbol in these groups, and it it was always also a bit ironic for me because wolves aren't really that way, right? Like if you look at the biology of wolves, they are mostly a cooperative species. The the pack is very important to them and often packs are their families, right? They they live in family relations. And you know, a, a wolf, there's there's some interesting work that shows that talks about the difference between wolves and dogs. And one of the things that it points out is that wolves are very hard to, to make angry because the pack is is so important to them that they are willing to tolerate a lot before they would break those bonds. And so I was just like, you know, so here's the thing. It's it, these, this interpretation, the story that, that these folks, these white nationalists and alt-right groups are telling about wolves is completely wrong. But it picks up on these cultural narratives and the idea of the, the alpha male and about this notion of wolf violence in a way that 
in a way that they deploy for their own ends. And it was really, you know, the research itself was was pretty horrific um, in terms of learning about how it is that racism and misogyny and particular ideas of the wolf are bound together in these these narratives. Hmm. I think what all of this shows is just how important it is for us to question how our understandings of Earth have come from intentionally and socially constructed narratives. And so that we peel back the curtains to try to understand how and by whom these stories and experiences have been shaped. Mm -hmm. So really fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. I mean, I think you've just explored some really interesting topics through unexpected lenses. And I always appreciate being pushed outside of the dominant narratives that we often hear that, as we discussed, are often the products of power. So I'd love to hold space for you as we're nearing the end of our conversation to share anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners, as well as any other prompts or questions that you'd invite them to keep marinating on after this conversation. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I uh, increasingly am drawn to to pay attention to and to be curious about the nature that is close to home. And I think, you know, referring to the Governing the Wild book, one of the key lessons was that, you know, people want to travel to see nature. We want to go places, right, and and experience the spectacular. You know, I want to see the Grand Tetons, and they are stunning and spectacular. But what is our responsibility for the places that we actually live and for the people that we, we share the land with? And so increasingly with the pandemic, We've been, you know, we've been seeing these stories of nature kind of emerging in our absence. And some of them have been true stories and some of them haven't been. But I can say that in my place in the world, there's been lots of wildlife activity that's been kind of unexpected and and charmingly beautiful. And I have been thrilled to see it and also want to to help encourage it to flourish. So so I think my my advice would be, you know, if we want to unpack these narratives about nature, a good place to start doing it is the places where we stand and where we dig our feet into the dirt. And understanding, I think, also, like, for instance, what is my relationship to the land? But also, what is other people's relationship to the land? People's relationships to the land that were here much longer than my own. And what can I, how can I learn in solidarity with that knowledge? So yeah, digging where you stand, I think, is is the place that I'm at these days. What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Well, so I'm not on social media. So that kind of makes me a bit strange, um, except I am on Instagram, weirdly. <laughs> it's made my life a lot better, but I, I think I often have no idea what's going on in the world because of it. 
But a, a book I read recently that I absolutely loved is called Our History is the Future by Nick Estes. And it traces the long history of Indigenous resistance that led to the Dakota Access Pipeline, the No DAPL movement. And it's this, this beautiful roadmap for the power of Indigenous understandings of the land and, and all its creatures and how this way of relating to the world, how it offers what he calls futures premised on justice. So everybody should read this book. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? Mm. I am strangely and probably unreasonably optimistic about the state of the world. And I think it's because I get to be around amazing students who I teach here at my university who are committed to change and who don't take people, you know, people like me, they don't take our BS anymore. So, so I'm uh, inspired by, by them and what they teach me about the world. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? So what makes me hopeful in a very kind of hope as a political term is that maybe one of the things that comes out of this horrible COVID-19 pandemic that we are in the middle of or hopefully coming out of right now is that we can imagine new ways of interacting with the world, with each other and with the natural world. And so Arundhati Roy, who wrote The God of Small Things, she, she had this article at the beginning, beginning of the pandemic in The Guardian. You may have seen it called Pandemic as Portal. And and the question is, where is the portal going to? And what I'm hopeful for is that it goes somewhere that pays more attention to the importance of justice-oriented solutions. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close. Stephanie's website is www.stephanierutherfordphd.com. And you can follow her work at the Trent University School of the Environment on Twitter at Trent underscore TSE. Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing this uh, really thought-provoking conversation with me. Really appreciate you and all the work that you're doing. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I'm going to give you somebody else's words, and those are those are words from Cornell West. So Cornell West tells us that justice is what love looks like in public, and it's my most favorite quote in the world. And so the words that I would leave your listeners with are to, to love each other and to love the earth and love those animals and plants and the soil. But I think also to recognize that love isn't easy, right? And that we often misrecognize each other, even I think in our closest relationships. And so learning to love is this iterative process that we will probably get wrong again and again, but figuring it out is, is, the, is our job, I think. So I leave you with love. This episode was brought to you by our community and listener patrons. To support this independent media platform, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. The song featured in this episode is Come Over Tonight by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production management intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. I'm so deeply grateful to have you here and to have your support. And I will catch you soon in the next episode.